I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. Hey guys, uh, thanks so much for joining me today. Uh, Here we are. This is the Tuesday live stream. I'm Pastor Mike Winger. We talk about here theology, apologetics, giving uh, not only an answer to questions about the Christian faith, but trying to give biblical answers to what the Christian faith actually is. Um, So learning uh, how to think biblically about everything, yada, yada, yada. That's kind of what I do here. Today, we're talking about evidence that the Gospels are historical and not legendary. Thank you guys so much for joining me for the live stream. Those who are watching live. And if you miss the live stream and you want to catch it, make sure to subscribe and then click the, there you go. Click that little bell thing. And if, if that's only if you want notifications, if you want to be notified every time I make a video or go live, then that's what you want to do. Um, all right, here we are brought to you by you, you guys banded together and you appealed to YouTube to restore my live streaming abilities and it worked. You got the job done. Thank you very much. So here we are Tuesday live stream. Now, listen up. This stuff I'm going to share with you right now is actually really important. Um, It's one of the reasons why people leave the Christian faith. And um, yeah, so (laughs) it really is. This is like one of the reasons. It's not a good reason. There isn't a good reason to leave the Christian faith, but there are reasons people leave. And I like to deal with those things in the course of doing this online ministry because I know it's relevant to you and hopefully helps you impact the lives of other people. So... Most Christians just assume that the Gospels are based on eyewitness accounts. Now, I think we're right when we say this, but we do just assume it. We we don't, we don't like say, how do you know that? How do you prove that? We we just assume it. It's, I feel like it's part of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We just trust the scriptures. But how do we know this? Because there's these really smart scholarly people out there who want to give us the real story of how we really got our Bible and how the Bible's not really full of eyewitness accounts about Jesus, but it's actually barely better than just rumors and community traditions that have been altered by countless handoffs from one person to another to another until by the time it finally got to being written down, it it's unrecognizable from whatever the story may have originally been. And so this, let me, let me just not give you, give it to you in my words. I'm going to give it to you in the words here. This is Bart Ehrman. You're going to listen to Bart Ehrman. He's probably, um, I, I think one of the most, uh, vocal, um, anti-Bible individual. I would, I call him anti-Bible. I mean, the Bible is the word of God and he's, he's using his, his, you know, pulpit and scholarship to challenge that book after book after book. But listen to how he puts it, because I'm, I want you to imagine you're the you're the college student sitting at Chapel Hill at his college, and here comes your professor, and he's like the smartest guy you've ever met, right? And he comes and he says something like this. Listen to this audio about the Bible and how we got our New Testament Gospels. Jesus died, and people started telling stories about him in order to convert people to the faith. When somebody converted, they told the story to somebody else. That person told the stories to somebody else. That person told the stories to somebody else, and that person told the stories to somebody else. This went on for year after year after year, decade after decade, before the gospel writers were uh, were themselves writing. What happens when stories are put in circulation orally? Stories get changed. If you ever had your children play the game telephone uh, in a birthday party where one kid tells a story to the next kid sitting at the birthday party, and then the story goes to the next kid, to the next kid goes around the circle until it comes back to the first kid, it's a different story. If it weren't a different story, it'd be a pretty dumb birthday party game to play. 
the stories change. What happens if you play this game not in one living room with a bunch of kids from the same socioeconomic class who all speak the same language? What if you play the game for 35, 45, 55 years in different languages, in different countries, telling stories that the people who are telling the stories were not there to witness? What happens to the stories? The stories get changed. Okay, so it seems really clear. Like, this is... This is this guy's a scholar in his field talking about these issues. It seems very clear he's saying that the initial stories about Jesus started with these sources. They told someone. That person told another person and another and another and it happened for decades. I mean this could have been it could have passed through a thousand hands before it got to the point or more before someone actually wrote it down so that this writing the gospels Matthew, Mark, Luke and John it doesn't reflect the stuff that Jesus actually did. It's just stories and rumors. Um, this is impactful, though. You, you imagine hearing this from like a college professor or someone you respect, and you have no easy way of even testing the claim. I mean, you know, you've read the Bible, but you don't you don't realize that what you've read actually debunks the things Bart Ehrman just claimed. It debunks it, but you don't know because you've read the Bible for devotional purposes, to get the doctrine and theology of it. You haven't read it asking, is there evidence that there are, you know, eyewitness sources behind these accounts? Like, it didn't occur to you, so you're not prepared for this. <clears throat> so... That's what we're going to do today. We're going to be looking at the the two different views, the community tradition view versus the oral history view. Um, the community tradition view, that's what Bart Ehrman's talking about. And this is like dominated scholarship up until the early 1900s. That is changing, has in a sense, in a big way, it has changed. And so um, not that all scholars are on the same page here, but but in, in many ways it has changed. There's been some good stuff I'll share with you today that will uh, that will help you out here. But if... You've got to understand the value of this 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 question. If the if the gospels are not records from eyewitnesses, if they don't trace back to eyewitness accounts, historical, you know, content, then that means that now the scholars can come to the text of the New Testament and they can ask a new question. Of all the stuff that Jesus said, what did he really say? And so we get things like the, uh, the, the Jesus seminar, which was in the 1990s, the early 90s. It was a seminar that was meeting uh, on a regular basis and they would gather together and they would decide what they thought Jesus really said versus what Jesus might have said. So Bart Ehrman, for instance, he was part of the Jesus seminar and he thought that most of what's written in the gospels that's in red letters in your Bible now, um, Jesus didn't say most of those things. One of the things he thinks Jesus did say was something about the son of man, but Bart Ehrman's view of Jesus is that the son of man, that phrase son of man, I just recently did a video on this topic too. His view is that the phrase son of man, Jesus is referring to someone other than himself. Now, if you read the gospels, you're like, that's silly. Like Jesus is obviously talking about himself. But if you can cut chunks out of the Bible and remove most of the gospels from the gospels, and you can whittle it down to just select statements that you pick, you can make a Jesus that fits any description you want. And that's what the Jesus seminar people have done. That's what the historical Jesus research a lot of times has done in the past. But if the New Testament comes back to eyewitness accounts, you don't get to do that anymore. You can't take eyewitness accounts and just chop up and cut out bunch of, a bunch of things that Jesus said to recreate some new version of Jesus that fits whatever your own personal description. I mean, these guys never have a version of Jesus that fits each other's. They, everybody ends up with a, a Jesus tailor-made to, them, to themselves, their own personal Jesus, <laughs> so to speak. Um, so... I'm going to give you now good reasons to reject the community tradition view and to hold the idea that we have historical sources in the Gospels. I won't give you every reason because it's too much information to fit in one video, but I'm going to give you some good reasons. And we're going to start with a guy named Papias. Okay, 
Papius, this guy right here. Um, Papius, I like this picture of him. There's no picture of it. He's a he's a first and an early second century character individual who uh, was the bishop of Hierapolis. So he's a church leader in the city of Hierapolis. Um, Hierapolis is is an important city for for uh, uh, trade reasons, right? So Hierapolis positioned right there with that little. The little dot thing is um, Hierapolis is actually on, on the segue of different trade routes. And so a lot of other cities in order to pass through Asia, they're going to go into Hierapolis. And so it's kind of like a, a location that puts him in a very interesting place for meeting people and knowing things. That'll become important because what Papias says about the nature of, of tradition versus history in the early church is really profound. So um, Hierapolis was, like I said, was kind of an important city. It's in modern day Turkey. Um, it's a Roman, was a Roman province uh, of Asia near Laodicea, near uh, Colossae, near these different cities as well. Okay, we're going to look um, at uh, something that we get from uh, Vernon Bartlett in his uh, work, uh, Papias's Exposition. He says about the location of where Papias was, I'll show you again, Hierapolis. He says, Hierapolis, of which he became bishop or chief local pastor, stood at the meeting point of two great roads, one running east and west between Antioch and Syria and Ephesus, the chief city of Asia. The other southeast, Italia in, in Pamphylia and northwest to Smyrna. There, Papias was almost uniquely placed for collecting traditions coming from, coming direct from the original home of the gospel before both uh, before his own day and during it. As well as from Palestinian Christian Jewish, uh, excuse me, Palestinian leaders settled in Asia, a great center of the Jewish dias uh, dispersion or diasporia. Okay, so I'm sorry if I muddled up that quote a little bit, but he's saying that uh, Papias is in a great location in Hierapolis for actually contacting people who were listening to the actual original sources for these stories. They could be coming from Israel. They could be coming from Jerusalem. They could be coming from other well-known uh, cities with, with well-known Christian leaders there. Now let's, um, let's look at another, another piece of information, which is going to come from the scripture. I'll bring up my logo software so you guys can see it. In um, uh, where we're going, Acts 21 verse 8. By the way, while I'm doing this, if you are watching on the live stream, which right now y'all are, but later most people won't, um, you can put questions in the live chat. I, I tend to get a lot of questions in there, so just put Q in front of your question. I'll try to answer as many of those as I can at the end of the stream. It's going to be a lot of data today, though, so I don't know how, how many questions I'll get. Please forgive me if I don't get to answer your question. Um, I understand that can be a, a bummer, but I, I just, I'm doing, you know, answer as many as I can with the time I've got. Um, so I, I get you there. But hi, thanks guys for joining me. It's good to have you with me. Let's see, we've got like already, I think we have over 240 people. And um, uh, what's exciting is this content will just go out, hopefully God willing, for years to come. Okay, so Acts 21 verses 8 and 9. It says, On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Now, according to uh, multiple historical sources, including the book of Acts, but also we have other sources, at least two more, this Philip the Evangelist, his daughters were contemporaries with Papias, the guy we're talking about today. And so they would have, they would have interacted with one another. They would have actually known each other. So Papias is like a glimpse back into the early, uh, the early Jesus died and people started telling church. stories about him in order to Bart Ehrman, you're done. Stop. All right. We're going to look now 
at the passage from Papias that oftentimes these things, they get, they get lost to us, to normal people who aren't, we're not scholars. We're not, we're not studying, specializing in these fields, but we care about the Bible and we care if someone can go into history, grab some ancient piece of papyrus and say, Hey, this is relevant for the truthfulness of the scriptures. Um, so that, that's what we're doing today. Listen to what Papias says. He had written, by the way, five books, which are lost. Most of the stuff he wrote's gone, but this content from the Bishop of Hierapolis, from a guy who had access to a lot of, uh, of, of Christian teaching in the first and, and uh, early second century, this is what he said about his five books. And it tells us something that debunks the idea of community tradition as opposed to uh, oral history that we have in the, in the Gospels. Okay, here we go. I know it's really tiny, but I'll read it all to you here. Uh, I shall not hesitate. Also, to put into properly ordered form for you everything I learned carefully in the past from the elders and noted down well for the truth of which I vouch. So, first point, it mattered to Papias that the things he was going to write about Jesus, he was going to write about the sayings of Jesus and what they meant. Um, it mattered to him that these things were historically accurate. So he's, he's saying, I learned it and it's not enough that I'm a, I'm a leader in the church. No, I, I had to get it from the elders. I had to note it down well. Then he goes on, he says, for unlike most people, I did not enjoy those who have a great deal to say, but those who teach the truth. Nor did I enjoy those who recall someone else's commandments, but those who remember the commandments given by the Lord to the faith and proceeding from the truth itself. And if by chance, anyone who had been in attendance on the elders should come my way, I inquired, remember that word inquired, he inquired about the words of the elders. That is what according to the elders, Andrew or Peter said, or Philip, or Thomas, or James, or John, or Matthew, or any of the other, any other of the Lord's disciples. And whatever Aristion and the elder John, the Lord's disciples, were saying. For I did not think that the information from books would profit me as much as information from a living and surviving voice. Now this <clears throat> quote from Papias is preserved in uh, Eusebius, um, which I have somewhere. And it's, it's preserved in Eusebius' church history. Um, so we, we have like some fragments of Papias that other people, they quote him. We don't have his original works. Um, but uh, what's interesting is Eusebius doesn't actually like Papias very much. He calls him stupid because they have different eschatology views. Does this sound like today? He like just calls him stupid because his eschatology is different. Man, nothing changes. Um, anyhow, there's several things we learn from this quote from Papias, and you've got to catch the, I'll, I'll try to boil it down so we just remember the, the point of it all, right? The point of it all. Um, there's four categories of people that Papias considers worthy sources, people worth listening to. And I'll leave the quote up while I'm talking because you may want to be uh, glancing at it. I hope you can see it on a cell phone if you're watching on a mobile device. I'm sorry if it's not legible. Check it on a computer uh, and it'll be better for you. Um, first, the first category is people who were in attendance on the elders. This is people who heard the elders teaching. They're not... Uh, third generation Christians, rather, the elders are people specifically commissioned, like, uh, like, well, I'll get to I'll get there in a second who the elders were. But th these are people who are, um, who've heard for themselves, the teaching of the authoritative sources in the church, in the first century church. So Papias doesn't consider general Christians or my grandma's brothers, butchers, you know, dog walker, that's not a good source for Christian teaching as far as he's concerned. He wants it to be tracing back to these authoritative sources in the early church. So the second one. Now, now, by the way, being the bishop of Hierapolis, he would have had access to people traveling from those places where those elders were all the time. Second source he's interested in 
is the elders themselves. Um, this is not, uh, at least according to Richard Bauckham, whose book I will be plugging today because it's really good. And I, I seem to have eaten it or something. I don't know what I did with it. Um, <laughs> sometimes I carry things around while I read them. Do you guys do that? And you put it down somewhere and you're like, where, where did it go? Um, yeah, it's probably in the kitchen somewhere. Well, uh, Richard Bauckham's book, I have a link in the description that, that explains that. It, it gives you his book. If you're interested in buying it, there's an affiliate link down there. Um, Jesus and the eyewitnesses, good stuff. So <clears throat> he says that these elders is not a reference to the disciples who traveled with Jesus, but those appointed by the disciples. And this is consistent with what we read in Paul's letters to Timothy. Paul says to Timothy, I, that's the reason I left you in Ephesus, that you may appoint elders in every city and that they may teach no other doctrine. So the, so the, the function, we go to first century sources here, the function of elders in different cities was to keep exactly the thing Araman talks about from happening. It was to make sure people didn't just make stuff up as they went. They had to keep the doctrine pure, keep the teaching the same. They, they were meant to have a preserving impact. Um, the third category Papias is interested in are the disciples of Jesus. And he, he mentioned seven of them, Andrew, Peter, Philip, Thomas, James, John, Matthew, or others. <clears throat> uh, seven is a number used uh, in this time to reference a, a whole list. And so you, you, you name seven to Im, Im, imply the rest through the seven, just an interesting side point there. The order is also interesting. It it fits. I'll do a thing on the names of the disciples one of these days, and when I do, you'll see this order: Andrew, Peter, Philip, Thomas, uh, James, John. Uh, those are clusters that fit with the text of the of, of the Gospels, and then we have Matthew or others. So we're just these these little consistencies between the um, Gospels and then extra biblical texts are really interesting. But that's beside the point. The fourth group is Aristion and the Elder John. And these two are called the Lord's disciples. These would be people who, who heard Jesus himself. They, they, they would have heard him with their own ears. And now we have extra biblical, um, I should say extra papial. <laughs> it's not from Papias. Um, extra, um, you know, verification for these individuals, for both of them. Aristion was a first century elder at Smyrna. And we have, we have sources for this. I won't get into him for the sake of time in this video. Uh, but Smyrna was local to Hierapolis. It was about 130 miles away. And the thing he says about John the Elder and Aristion is that he, he wanted to write down not the things that they said past tense, but in the quote here, or here, yeah, he says he wanted to write down the things that they were saying, meaning that when he was collecting these traditions, which Richard Bauckham suggests was about 80 to 90 AD in the first century, he's writing down traditions. And we have John the Elder and Aristion, disciples of Jesus, right? Who were with him, who were still alive, still communicating these truths all that time later. That's interesting, isn't it? And so they were continuing to speak while he was collecting these traditions. Um, then John the Elder, he's the Bishop of Ephesus, and there's a whole debate about who he was. I don't want to get into that today. The main point for the sake of this video is that John the Elder would have been a guy who had inside information about the teachings of Jesus direct from the source. It's very interesting stuff here. Um, there's other sources that, you know, confirm these things, but there's a lot I want to talk about today. So I want to, I want to just give a, a brief overview of these things. Um, here's the main point. Here's the main point from what Papias is saying is that we have an early second century document where a guy's writing and he's saying, I heard from someone who heard from someone who heard from someone. No, no, he's not saying that. He's, he's saying, I don't care what everyone's saying. I care about the original sources because I want historically valuable and true information about Jesus and what he taught and what it meant. And so he is going to validate what he says because he thinks they have historically accurate information. 
So he he acts like it's just known that these are authoritative sources because they're eyewitnesses. And this is what Richard Bauckham suggests in his work is the guarantors of oral history. So after the death of Jesus, the disciples are going out and they're teaching people what Jesus says, but they don't just disappear. The way Ehrman talks about it, you'd think that like Peter after Pentecost just went up to heaven and he wasn't around anymore. Um, and so that when, this, when, the, when the butcher told the baker, told the candlestick maker about Jesus, there was nobody there to correct the information if it got distorted. But rather what we're getting here from Papias is that even in, even after the writing of the gospels, it seems there is still people who are around who are at least even if you take late dates for the gospels, even during the writing of the gospels, there's people around who are guaranteeing the authenticity and historicity of the information relating to Jesus. They're eyewitnesses who not only told the story, but kept telling it and kept telling it. They're positioned in different cities throughout the empire and people know that they're the sources to go to for true information about Jesus. Bart Ehrman's presentation is utterly false when he implies that it's a telephone game. This is a debate tactic. And there's a reason why Ehrman doesn't, I think, doesn't use this debate when he's debating Mike Lycona because Mike Lycona knows better and he will call him out on it because his, his discipline is this, this field in particular. But when he's debating people he feels are less capable, I think he pulls up this telephone game stuff. Um, at least because I've watched a bunch of his debates. So here's the point. Well, several points. I'm giving you lots of good points today. Um, the preservation of history of what actually happened was not only important, it was also possible after the Gospels were even written. And it was these guarantors, these individuals that were spread throughout the empire that were consistently telling and clarifying and correcting the stories about Jesus. And it was just known. That's why he just writes, like, you just know it. You just know that these are the, these are the sources and these are this is the way we can confirm the truthfulness that this is like a real Jesus saying. Um, so ancient historians, uh, according to Richard Bauckham, um, they had three sources that they wanted and they were um, not considered equally. The first and best source was to be your own source. This was the number one thing you wanted, right? So Josephus, he is his own. He's a first century historian. He's his own source for some of the material he writes. That was the ideal thing. You want to be there with your own eyes. You're writing it as, so it's eyewitness testimony. That's the best thing. The second thing was to have an eyewitness account and interrogate that person. You were to actually interrogate them. So you not like you're, you're a cop getting them in trouble, but you're going to ask them questions so you can help flesh out the story and you can make sure that it's true and that sort of thing. The, the third and uh, lowest one on the totem pole was to read a written account from someone else. Now, the written account, the problem with it wasn't that it was written. The problem was you couldn't ask it questions, right? You, couldn't, you can't interrogate it. And so um, this has led some to think, that uh, that that Papias also in his writing he he's knocking the Gospels when he's like I didn't want written sources I wanted living and a living you know witness a living and breathing voice, um, but I think that's a misunderstanding because Papias he's doing this to write it down like the whole goal of him collecting this information is to then write it down and record it as history. In fact, all the historians that said they prefer a living witness to a written document, they would take that living witness, ask him questions, and they'd make a written document. So what they're saying is, I want direct access to eyewitnesses, and before they die, I want to write down what they say, so I can have the best history possible. What I don't want is just a written account from someone who, who is not historically minded from some time prior. That's not what they want. So um, 
it's interesting that even if you take a later dating of the Gospels, scholars debate on what the date of the Gospels is. I don't know what, what side to pick on that. But if you take the later date of the Gospels, it's still within a, a long lifetime of the guarantors of the historicity of the information. So they would still be some of them alive, still clarifying and, and, and guaranteeing the accuracy of the information, that it would be uh, consistent. Let's go back to this Papias quote. Um, he specifically says that if by chance anyone who had been in attendance on the elders should come his way, he, quote, inquired about the words of the elders. This is interesting because this word inquired, anachrisis, is uh, it, that that's the cognate noun uh, for it. I, I don't want to get into a bunch of Greek stuff, but I'll say this. This is the word used uh, most often in judicial context to refer to the examination of magistrates and parties, meaning like a real actual, careful questioning of an eyewitness. And that's what he wanted to do. Um, it's also used by Polybius, who is a, a Greek historian from the second century. He uses the noun here for uh, the historian's interrogation of eyewitnesses. And he calls this thing, this interrogation, he calls it the most important part of history. And so this is, this is Papius. He's like, I wanted to really get the details from these, these people. Uh, another thing he says in the same quote on your screen here, he said that he wanted a living and surviving voice, a quote, living and surviving voice. That's at the very end of the quote. Um, let me read to you what uh, Richard Bauckham says in his book, um, page 27, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. He says, what is most important for our purposes is that when Papias speaks of a living and surviving voice, he's not only speaking metaphorically of the voice of oral tradition, as many scholars have supposed, <clears throat> he speaks quite literally of the voice of an informant, someone who has personal memories of the words and deeds of Jesus and who is still alive. That's, that's what he wants so he can lock it into writing and have an accurate uh, representation of what Jesus really said and what Jesus really did. Um, oh, there's, there's more we could quote there, but I want to, I'm going to move forward. Um, the, uh, the, some of the points, let's draw some conclusions from Papias. Then we're going to look at the Gospel of Luke because the Gospel of Luke has something similar in the beginning of its pages that people so often miss. Sometimes I think some, some skeptics are, um, uh, and even critics and even scholars sometimes, they're reading between the lines of the Bible, but they're not looking at the lines themselves. And we're going to be looking at the actual lines, what they're actually saying today, because it's really neat that God has preserved this content so that there will be like evidential verification for the truthfulness of the scriptures. So some of the points we're making here. Um, uh, Bauckham says um, in page 28 of his book, whether the eyewitnesses were still living would not matter if the oral tradition were essentially independent of them. Like this is a pretty simple observation, right? Why does Papias care about eyewitnesses being still living? Except because it matters that we don't just have rumor floating around like Ehrman suggests. Papias assumes, page 29, Papias assumes that the value of oral traditions depends on their derivation from still living witnesses who are still themselves repeating their testimony. That's the assumption. Why, why does that matter to us? Because it's not just Papias. He's not just one weirdo in a group of people who don't care about the accuracy about Jesus's words. No, he's standing there in a, in a milieu, right? In a group of people Christians care what Jesus really said. I mean, ask us today, just like you could have asked us if, if you were alive in the first century, we care what Jesus really said, and we want that stuff preserved accurately. This is a, an important blow against the community tradition view, and, and if we successfully take a blow against the community tradition view, 
then it means that these people cutting and pasting passages out of the scripture to reconstruct a historical Jesus that looks very different than the one in the Gospels, that they have no validation for that. They have no excuse for doing it. It's, it's just an exercise in folly, if that's the case. So here we go. One more quote. Uh, I'll give you a couple more quotes from Bauckham. I, I found his book to be extremely useful, and I do recommend it. He says, once again, we should notice a key implication of Papias's words. He does not regard the gospel traditions as having date, uh, having by this date long lost a living connection with the eyewitnesses who originated them. Whether these eyewitnesses were still living would not matter if oral tradition were essentially independent of them. Papias assumes that the value of oral traditions depends on their derivation from still living witnesses who are still themselves repeating their testimony now that these are few... Uh, now that these are few secondhand reports of what eyewitnesses now dead used to say are valuable. But Papias's whole statement implies the value of oral tradition decreases, catch this, it decreases with distance from the personal testimony of the eyewitnesses themselves. That's the, that's the, you know, that's the state of, of thinking back then, as it, as it would be even today. This is just normal human thinking, I think. In fact, the period, he continues, he writes about the period he writes about when he collected his traditions was virtually the last time at which such collecting would be worth doing. And this, of course, is why Papias collected the traditions at that time, wrote them down and eventually made a book of them. It's surely not accidental that this was also the period in which the Gospels of Matthew, Luke and John were being written. So the, the conclusion is that the uh, the Gospels are written just then when the eyewitnesses will no longer be around to guarantee the accuracy of the story. And so here they are being written, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Luke and John, that they might be the guarantee of the story. And sure, sure enough, they are. And they're consistent with each other. So we have multiple accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, that are consistent with each other about the teachings of Jesus and what he did and what it meant. This is very important. We're getting... We're not getting this radically different Christianity in the second century than we had in the first century. On the other hand, uh, we're getting something that's preserving things. It's it's the same. Now, I, I know you wish that we had Papias' writings. I do. That would be neat. Wouldn't it be neat to have those writings? I mean, he wasn't, maybe he wasn't an inspired author. Maybe that's, maybe it wasn't preserved for that reason. Um, you know, God knows. But, but it'd be neat to have those. But I think we have something even better than this. You see, we have the actual writings of Luke. For instance, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have the Gospels themselves. Let's look for a second at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. And I don't know if you've ever done this, where you've read, read Luke, not for devotional purposes, not to learn how to follow Jesus, although these are good things to read the Bible for, but you're reading it to see what it says about the historical nature of the, the book itself of Luke. Now, Luke wrote Luke and Acts, same author, and he says here in verse 1, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seems good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, O most excellent Theophilus, that you uh, may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught." Luke makes it very clear in the beginning of the Gospel of Luke that this is meant to be a historically accurate document gathered from multiple eyewitness accounts from a guy who has made it his life's you know, journey to, to have an accurate understanding of these things. That's 
what Luke is saying here in Luke chapter one. This is neat. This is not starting like, like you know, in, in some other genre of literature. This is not sh- starting like Harry Potter uh, or or however that starts. It's not starting like those things. Look at some of the things that Luke says in this in this chapter. Um, he says that many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that were accomplished among them, right? But now, unlike some other writings, like like Josephus, when he writes, first century historian, right? When he writes, he actually starts some of his books by saying, other people tried to write about this. They were terrible at it. I'm going to do better. But that's not what Luke does here. He's not knocking the other narratives. He's just saying that many have. In fact, he says, if you take him at face value, that those who compiled narratives before him, they did it based upon eyewitness testimony as well. Luke's just going to compile his own narrative because verse 3, he's been following all these things closely for some time past. And so he wants to write like a more detailed account. I think he's just saying, I can, I have more, more data that I've, there's this account, this account, this account, but I've been doing following this for so long. I want to record it again, doing it while, um, while he's still living, while some of those witnesses are still living before they die. So they can guarantee the historicity of it. I think that's pretty neat. He says that those people were, quote, from the beginning eyewitnesses. This is a specific term that means something in Luke. They were from the beginning eyewitnesses. In Luke, that phrase from the beginning, it means from the beginning of the baptism of John, the beginning of Jesus's ministry. So in, in, in Luke's other work, Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 21, it says, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of of John until that day, uh, Luke cha- I'm sorry, Acts chapter one is a um, account of uh, how they're going to take someone to replace Judas who killed himself, a new disciple. But the requirement is this guy has to have been been with us the whole time because you can't check this out. You can't be a witness of Jesus and his resurrection unless you have been here with Jesus from the from the baptism of John through his entire three years of ministry and the, and seen the resurrection, now you can be a witness. That's from the beginning. And so then at Luke, at Luke 1, what we have is those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. There were these, these people in the church and spread out throughout the Roman Empire and even beyond. Um, they, they were guaranteeing the the, the factualness and the historicity of the content that they were sharing. That's the milieu of the first century. It is not like Ehrman says. It's not a telephone game. This is just deceptive to say this stuff. And it makes people lose their faith because they they suddenly start being really jaded towards the Bible. And it's just hard to even think clearly and even get past one verse without starting to challenge everything because there's like a seed of bitterness that often gets into the heart when you start to feel like this stuff isn't really God's word. Um, and it becomes very difficult to, to read it just as it is after that, I think. In John 15, we have another uh, use of this term, this from the beginning. Jesus speaking, he says, you also to the 12 will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. And so there's like this statement how they have to be with Jesus from the beginning. That's an act and it's in Luke and it's in John. That's the idea. It's a consistency. Um, so when Luke in Luke chapter one gives his account of what he's writing, he's basing it on eyewitness sources who spent years with Jesus and were kind of these trustworthy, verified sources for historicity in the early church. It is nothing like the telephone game. It's embarrassing when you realize how silly Aaron's description is. 
Um, he also uses this emphatic term, this phrase, just as they were delivered to us in verse 2. Um, so just as those um, and then have delivered them to us. These are the, the narrative, the stories, the truths of, of Jesus. It's important to Luke and to the people he's writing to, it's important that they get it just as, right? No, it, no, no changes, no additions, no subtractions. We want it just as it was delivered. This doesn't mean you can't paraphrase Jesus. It just means you better paraphrase him accurately, right? That it, so it's not like we're saying everything has to be word for word a quote. Uh, we, that's not the standard exactly. It's, it's that it's accurate. It's that it's truthful. It's that it represents correctly what happened and who, who did what. Airman here, he just starts to read between the lines instead of the lines. Luke 1 seems to make it pretty clear. If this, I think if this was any other document of history, they'd be like, look, here's a guy trying to write a historically accurate account. He has multiple sources. He claims to at least in his first chapter. And then we look and he's got all these details about people and places and names and politics and governmental issues and things that are going on, dates and things like this. Like he's got all this kind of stuff. It's a historical account. It's not rumor. It's, it's not a telephone game thing. And it's deceptive to tell people it is. It's just deceptive. Um, so here's more information in case that wasn't enough for you. Let's talk about something very similar, but, but very different as well. And that is the phenomenon of names in the Gospels. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have stories, lots of stories of Jesus. And sometimes Jesus heals a blind guy. And sometimes Jesus heals a guy and his name is Bartimaeus. You're right, blind Bartimaeus. Sometimes there's names, sometimes there's not. And you've got to wonder, why are there names here and not over here? What's the significance of these names? This is the kind of thing that just bores people out of their minds until you realize the value there is in it. So let me tell you some of the value there is in this. Um, okay, first, there are those who theorized, uh, like Boltmann, Rudolf Boltmann, and he theorized that names were added to the gospels over time so that, you know, after you got far removed from the time of Jesus, people started adding names to the stories because they were just making them enhanced. They wanted to make them better. So they wanted to give this guy a name. So they just made up names and added them later on. Now that's interesting because if it's, if that's true and you think Mark was written in Rome or you think, you know, the different gospels are written in different locations, it'd be difficult for their names to represent authentic Palestinian Jewish names, right? It would just think about it. But also, you'd expect something else. You'd expect that the later the gospel is, the more names it would have. The truth is that when you survey Mark, Luke, and Matthew, you the synoptic gospels, it shows that Luke and Matthew tend to drop names from Mark rather than add new ones. This goes against Boltman's theory. It wasn't, in fact, until, according to Bauckham, page 42 through 47, there's a whole section on this. Um, it wasn't until the 4th century that a tendency to add names to anonymous people is detectable. We're talking hundreds of years later. Now people are making up names. At first, they were losing names. They kept them, and the, the longer you got, the less they put names in, the further you got from the actual events themselves. So why did they do this? It seems... This is Bauckham's theory, and he's the only one that I'm aware of that has like a cohesive theory for explaining the occurrence of names in the Gospels, is that they're leaving these names in because they were living eyewitnesses who could verify the things that were being written in the Gospels. So Bartimaeus's name is in there because he was alive at the time it was written, and people could check with him to hear his story. He's the eyewitness source that that author is using. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? Um, let me give you some more examples on these lines. Let's go to um, Luke. I'm going to turn to Luke 24, verse 18. I say turn. I really mean click, I guess. 
Um, it says, then one of them named Cleopas answered him and said, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Now, this is Luke 24. I love this passage about the road to Emmaus, when Jesus opens their eyes to see how the entire Bible speaks of Christ. I have a whole series on Jesus in the Old Testament where we we talk about this kind of thing. 21, you know, videos in that series right now. Um, But here's a, a conversation where Jesus just talks to two guys, right? Just two guys. One of them gets a name. The other one doesn't. Why? Why does one get a name and the other one doesn't? Why are there names at all? Well, the name Cleopas comes up and he answers Jesus, you know, Jesus' statement. Hey, what are you talking about? Um, The story doesn't require him to be named. The companion's name is left out. But then we get this guy's name again in the Gospel of John. And in John 19, verse 25, it says, But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. So Cleopas, this person was known to Luke and he was known to John, the authors of Luke and John, and they both reference him in regards to specific events happening where generally speaking, the other disciples are not around, right? The the other disciples are gone in both of these stories. In Luke 24, they're just two guys. And in John 19, they're at the empty tomb. The other disciples, the normal witness sources that the gospel writers are using are not around. So they use a name to tell you where their source is. It's Clopas, Cleopas, and it is the same name, Clopas and Cleopas. Uh, Clopas is a, a rare Semitic form of the Greek name Cleopas. It's super rare so that we can be certain that these two are a reference to the same person. Um, which according to, uh, I'll just read this to you from Bacham as well. According to Hegesippus, uh, Clopas was the brother of Jesus' father Joseph and the father of Simon, who succeeded his co- cousin James as leader of the Jerusalem church. So Clopas ends up being a significant figure in the Jerusalem church. Um, he's still alive, eyewitness of Jesus, right? He's still alive. He's, he's a leader in the church. But at, at a later time, when these gospels are being written, that's when he's a leader in the church or or shortly thereafter. Um, and so that's, that's, pretty, uh, that's pretty neat, isn't it? Let me give you another example. Uh, the women as witnesses. Um, let me take you back to the, uh, to the home screen. Just a reminder, if you have not, you may want to uh, subscribe, even click like on the video if you want to help this content get out to more people, because I love talking about the truth of God's word, and uh, and you can help spread that truth by just sharing the content. Um, okay, here's another one. The women as witnesses. It's interesting for several reasons that the, that the uh, scriptures record women around the death of Jesus. In particular, it names them too. They get names, right? These different women named Mary, multiple Marys, um, and things like that. So they have women at the, um, at the, at the death of Jesus, witnessing his death at the burial of Jesus, seeing Jesus get buried and at the empty tomb. The gospels are very consistent here. There's women that are highlighted. They're not just mentioned. They're highlighted as being witnesses of these events. Why? Well, I think the bottom line is these are again events where the disciples are not all present and the normal witnesses then the sources that the gospel writers are using are not there. So they're going to reference these women who were the sources for those parts of the stories, right? The woman saw, saw the burial. The women went to the empty tomb and saw it and they became just irrevocably part of the story. they just really were witnesses. It's just being recorded like it's history, not like it's rumor, not like it's legend, nothing like that. Later, late second century legends, fabrications, where people tried to make their own gospel to basically create a cult and steal people away from Christianity. Um, they made weird stories about the empty tomb, about like the, the, the gospel of Peter has like this giant cross that comes out of the tomb and then the cross talks. 
like this giant cross is talking and Jesus, he comes out of the tomb and his, his head is above the clouds and he's like, he's like thousands of feet high and um, you can't even see the top of his head. It's, it's just this, these different kinds of legendary stories. And now you've got um, their witnesses are all of the, uh, like the Pharisees and stuff, the, the Romans, they're gathered around to witness Jesus being risen. So this is, this is legendary development, historical truth here is yeah women went to the tomb which was standard you know they would go to the tomb to dress the the body that's like standardly what they would do and they were the ones that witnessed these things um richard bockham says it could hardly be clearer that the gospels are appealing to the women's role as eyewitnesses it could hardly be clearer i'll give you another example um simon of cyrene simon of cyrene we read about um in a couple different places uh i'll bring him up on your screen here in Mark 15, verse 21, Jesus is carrying his cross, but he's unable to carry it either at all or alone. Perhaps this, this guy carried it with him. Uh, Mark 15, 21, and they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the, far, uh, from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Now in Mark's gospel, we read about Simon of Cyrene. Uh, now, it's enough to say that he's Simon of Cyrene, isn't it? Why do I have to say he's the father of Alexander and Rufus? Except that Alexander and Rufus were people who were living witnesses known to the readers of Mark. So they, perhaps Simon was 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 dead or perhaps he didn't convert. Some people think maybe he didn't get saved. I, I, I don't know. I don't think that the text is clear. But Alexander and Rufus, they seem to be known. And so he writes their names here because they're people that, guess what? They can go talk to Alexander. Hey, do you remember... Alexander, when your dad was, uh, you know, asked to carry the cross of Jesus. Oh, yes, I remember that. Rufus, who might be the same Rufus from Romans 16, 13. When Paul writes, he said, greet Rufus chosen in the Lord. Also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. So this could possibly be the same Rufus. This might be another historical connection between the texts of scripture. In Matthew 27, we get uh, this story again, it says, as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. Nothing there about Alexander and Rufus, because perhaps the, the audience that Matthew is thinking of, they don't know Alexander and Rufus as well, or maybe they at this point have already died and have already gone on to be with the Lord. That may be the case. Um, and again, you get the same story in the gospel of Luke and it's in Luke twenty three twenty six. 26, um, Simon of Cyrene is being asked to carry the cross of Jesus. The implication is this is a real dude who really did carry the cross of Jesus. It's just historically accurate information. Again, the, 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 the legendary development would be dropping of names, not the adding of names. But there's more. There's more. Um, speaking of names, because um, we, can, we can talk about those like Jairus and Bartimaeus. And the, the, there's different people who are named. And, and you read your Gospels now, you're going to be thinking like, oh, Oh, look, this guy's randomly named for no good reason. It, I wonder if he was an eyewitness that was alive at the time of the writing. I wonder if he helped solidify the, the facts around the story for the people in the community. But there's more information, and that is information about Palestinian names. So um, this didn't exist a while back. In uh, 2002, uh, Tal Ilan, uh, uh, a uh, Palestinian... What am I trying to tell you? Basically, uh, Talilan, a, a woman from Israel, who um, she's an Israeli scholar, and uh, she published a database where she went through um, 500 years of history in Palestine in particular, just Palestine. So not Asia and, and not those other places, but we're talking about Israel here. 
Um, and she looked at the names they have from documents as well as a large number of names from burial, you know, like ossuaries and, and papyrus and things like that. So she gathered the names of people to gather statistics on what were basically the most popular names in Palestine in the time of 330 BC to uh, 200 uh, CE or AD or however you want to argue your way through that one. <laughs> so she considered over 3,000 names altogether and it's specific to that area where Jesus walked, right? Um, the conclusions are this. I, I may do a whole video on this one day. It's a lot of data and it's too much to put in today's video. I do want to do some Q&A still. So um, we're going we're gonna to hold off on that. But um, her conclusion was this. It's really neat. Uh, is, is that she has these these categories of common names. She also looked at when when people had common names, like Simon, an incredibly common name. Um, in fact, 15% of men in Palestinian times when Jesus was walking the earth uh, and in Palestine, 15% of men were named Simon or Joseph. It was that these were these common names. So often when you had Simon, you would get a qualifier like Simon of Cyrene, right? Or Simon, son of Jonah. Or they might even just be using a different name, a Greek name instead of their Hebrew name. And people would often have a Greek and a, and a Hebrew or Aramaic name. The conclusion, though, was this. Richard Bauckham takes her work, this lexicon of Jewish names in late antiquity, and compares it to the names found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And he says, are the statistics fitting? Do they fit? The occurrences of names like Mary and Joseph, uh, do these names fit the same rates of occurrence found in the rest of Palestine during the time of Jesus? And the answer is they fit. They fit really well. And they especially fit when you take all four Gospels and combine them all. So you have the largest pool of data. They fit the best. Not only do the amounts of names fit, but the, the way the names were clarified, like Simon the Tanner, that kind of thing, that also fit. What does this give us then? Um, well, if your theory is that the Gospels are non-historical and are just a series of rumors degrading, degrading, degrading with additions and changes and alterations to fit whatever climate it came into. If that's your theory, then how is it that these statistics fit? Like, like names aren't that easy to, to do this with. I mean, okay, in the years that I was born, um, Michael and Sarah were the two popular, most popular names. I've looked it up. Um, the year that I was born. Michael, guess what my sister's name is? Sarah. Yeah. Okay. So we're pretty generic. Nowadays, things are different. Names are changing, right? The, the, currently, one of the most popular boy names is like Liam and popular girl names right now, Sophia. And soon to be followed by Broccoli, I think, uh, Carrot Stick or um, or um, like Cabbage or something like that. These, these, you know, food names are becoming really popular for some reason. Um, and so th this is, this is a, a dynamically changing thing. Names change. Not only do they change with time, but they change with place. So if you were making up the Gospel of Mark and you lived in Rome, how did you get these Palestinian names correct? If you were living in Asia and you were part of the dispersion, how did you get the names right from Palestine that don't match the names from Asia? You didn't. It matches because it's historical. That's the point. Uh, there's one other category I want to talk about real quick, and then I'll give you conclusions, and I'll go to your guys' questions in the Q&A. Here's the category I want to talk to you guys about. Genre. Um, it used to be thought that the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were of a mythological kind of genre. In fact, when, when scholars would categorize them, they would say the type of writing we have in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is sous-genre or a unique genre, unique to just the Gospels. It was viewed like mythology. And so scholars would view their job as to go into the Gospels and demythologize the text. 
to take out all the myths and boil it down to this sort of like where there's hardly anything left and they go that's the historical core um, some go a step further and they say the entire gospels are all, all myth but this has totally changed in a positive way the um the work um of people like in the Jesus seminar in the early nineties, they assumed this kind of genre from the, from the text of scripture. So they approached the gospels wrong. And that's what you see on national geographic and the history channel. And these are the guys being interviewed on all the, all the stuff that goes on to the secular world. And they, they said the gospels are assumed to be narratives. I'm quoting them now, the Jesus seminar in which the memory of Jesus is embellished by mythic elements that express the church's faith in him and by plausible fictions that enhance the telling of the gospel story for first century listeners who knew about divine men and miracle workers firsthand. Supposedly historical elements in these narratives must therefore be demonstrated to be so. In other words, they assume it's false unless they, unless they find out it's true. That was the approach of these scholars. You get why they can stand up and say things like Ehrman says. But the genre was misidentified. The genre of the gospels is now pretty much agreed upon. It is now seen as um, Greco-Roman biography, which is a type of historical genre. It's very different than, say, Harry Potter, which is like fantasy fiction, right? The Bible's historical, at least uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, historical genre, ancient biography. Um, this happened actually way before the Jesus Seminar. They just weren't paying attention. It happened in 1977 uh, with a work by a guy named Charles Talbert, um, and it shifted the opinion that the Gospels were ancient biography. And then that continued... Uh, even more, when a guy named Richard Burridge, he set out to, and a scholar, to disprove Talbert, and he ended up writing a book saying, no, he was right. These are biography. So that, um, now, it, I, here's a quote from Graham Stanton. Now, why do I read all these names? I want people to be able to look these things up and to fact check me and all that. I, and I think that uh, that's a good thing to do. So, Graham Stanton wrote, uh, another scholar in the field, about Burridge's book, he said, because it was, it was such a pivotal book to change the way people viewed the genre of the Gospels, he says, I do not think it is now possible to deny that the Gospels are a subset of the broad ancient literary genre of lives, that is, biographies. Biographies. So the current consensus of scholarship is that, um, I believe it's a consensus, it's certainly majority, I think it's a consensus, is that the Gospels are ancient biography. Um, this is neat. Now, why isn't it history? Why don't we call it history? Well, the only difference here between biography and history, the main difference is biography is history focused on one person's life, whereas history is, is less specific to an individual and more to like a community or to a, a nation. So we're considering a biography because it's history about a person's life, history about Jesus's life. Um, so let me give you some conclusions. The telephone game theory falls apart under the evidence. The idea that this stuff was made up from far, in faraway lands, far from the land of Israel, that doesn't make sense. The names thing kind of debunks that, doesn't it? Um, the idea that traditional development happened and that that was even acceptable to people, that seems to be debunked by Papias's writings. That seems to be debunked by what, what Luke wrote and how he did his gospel. Um, the question about how can we validate that these things really come from eyewitnesses? Well, we have lots of statements in the text of the Gospels that seem to support the idea that eyewitnesses were guaranteeing the factual nature of the things that they were communicating. So I have to ask, if you're a skeptic and you've stuck with me this long, thank you so much that you're actually sticking with me. I hope you realize I'm not just preaching at you. I'm trying to talk it through, give you the evidence that you've been asking for. The question is, do you care? Do you care that there's evidence? Because it can be hard to overcome your prior beliefs. It works both ways. It might be hard to leave Christianity for some, but it might be hard to go back to it even harder, actually, I think, for many others. 
they hear guys like airmen but they don't know the the facts behind it so they can't challenge those guys so they just go yeah i just give it up i just i trust airmen i don't trust the bible end of story i think you have to recognize that unbelieving scholars like bart airmen are not unbiased and they're not necessarily giving you good information or, or good representations of the truth now, this is not everything. There's a lot more. Uh, geography, internal consistencies in the scripture, extra-biblical verifications, early dating evidence, num numbers of manuscripts, and there's so much more that I could talk about that won't fit in today's video and stuff I'm still learning as I study these things. But my faith uh, has been uh, validated and encouraged and strengthened by the evidence that I have found when I looked to verify um, and not just listen to what a skeptic said and throw out my faith, but I looked to verify those claims and found out that the scripture uh, can can hold its own. <laughs> It'll go 10 rounds and still be standing. So um, I'm going to go to your guys' questions. So if you guys can send me those over. Um, thank you so much for joining with me today. And if you're wondering, in case you're new to this, this is the Tuesday live stream, I, at least at the moment, and, and, until I make an announcement about it. And I'll put it on my YouTube banner as well on my channel. Um, I do every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, and my goal is to do uh, to teach people how to think biblically about everything. But I realize that if I want you to think biblically about everything, I want to also confront issues that are challenging the biblical worldview, that are challenging the Bible, and that are challenging to the Christian faith, so that I can show people that it's true, and then help them have a uh, biblically accurate, truthful, solid Christianity um, for themselves. Okay, so first question is from uh, Zenshi. Hi, Zenshi. Uh, says, you're my favorite YouTuber. Well, thank you very much. Um, what are your thoughts about the severely mentally handicapped people who cannot understand the gospel? Will they be saved? Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to venture... Um, I don't think I have a, a clear text of scripture that specifically answers this question. So when I don't have a clear text of scripture to answer a question, I, I try to argue from biblical principles. I'll go, well, are there biblical principles that will help me answer this question? Um, the biblical principle that I would use is that God keeps us accountable for the things we knew. Um, so J Jesus is, says to, um, uh, to, to, excuse me, Chorazin and Bethsaida, for instance, these two towns around Galilee that he visits and they reject him largely. He says to them, your judgment is going to be worse than Sodom and Gomorrah because of the works that were done in you meaning that they saw the actual incarnate son of God doing miracles in their very presence. So they had a greater awareness and that greater awareness brought greater judgment. Now, does that work the other way around? Lesser awareness is lesser judgment. I do believe so. I think that's the only way to be rational about it. So um, severely mentally handicapped people, they'll be gauged based upon exactly their awareness. Here's the thing. God knows exactly what's in their heart. He knows what they're capable of. He knows what they understand and what they don't understand. Now they still deal with sin. They still do with the sin nature and they still need the savior, but God is going to be perfectly fair and just. And I believe in how he handles that based upon their awareness and the response to what God did show them, not just their inability to understand certain things. So the beautiful thing here is that the God who knows the heart and the mind and all the what ifs of life and, you know, all that, he's going to judge them uh, perfectly and his desire is, is for them to be saved. And I think he's made a way for that to happen. Um, but I don't think that it means if I'm mentally handicapped, I'm automatically Christian and saved. I, I wouldn't go that far to say that. Um, but, I, but ultimately, you know, God will answer all those questions for us at some point. Um, number two, Decided Scroll says, uh, why was Samson... In the Hebrews Hall of Faith? That's a good question, man. Um, 
you know, I was asked this question in, in, in the discussion with, um, with, uh, with my Q and a group, we, we do, we do Q and a every week at the end of my Sunday evening service, which I put online, but I don't put the Q and a online. And that was the same question they asked, like, um, was Samson saved? That was the, that was the debate was Samson saved. Did this guy, did this guy go to heaven or, you know, will, will he, will he be someone we're going to see one day? And, um, the question was, okay, well, are there any specific passages of scripture that give us a reason to think that he might have been saved? Well, there's this Hebrews 11 32. And what more shall I say for time would fail to fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah also of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith subdued kingdoms. And they did all these things through faith. We can say this with Samson. What's clear in Hebrews 11, Samson did what he did ultimately through faith. Does that mean he had saving faith? I'm not, I'm not confident to answer this question, but I think it implies that he did have saving faith. I think it's implied. Um, so there we go. I, I think that's the reason. And now, now the, the bare bones reason why he's in Hebrews is because Samson um, did amazing feats through the power of God. And so he's being listed amongst those who did amazing things that you can't humanly do without God's power. And so that's his main reason. I do think it does imply that he's saved. And man, what a gracious, gracious God. Um, and then um, Amanda Cornett has a question. What do you think of the historical critical method? I'm taking uh, an early Christian philosophy course using the method. The course covers the first through fourth centuries. So the historical critical method is what um, Bauckham talks about in his book. So what I'm going to recommend, Amanda, is that you get Bauckham's book. You can get it with the link I put in the video description here through either Kindle or in print. And I think you'll find it very valuable. I think that there are dangers in the historical critical method that start with the assumptions they make going in, right? They are assuming some things going in and that's what Bauckham deals with. Uh, I would recommend you, you check out that book. Um, yeah. I think if the G, if the Jesus seminar is the end result of your philosophy, then something was definitely wrong <laughs> with your philosophy. Um, okay. Mariano Rogers says, uh, what are your thoughts and opinions on the Q document? And why do you think guys like Ehrman try to appeal to it or cite it when it comes to the gospels? Okay, so Q is, 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 a, is a term used to refer to a potentially existent document no one has. No one has a copy of Q. No one can prove it exists. Not currently. Um, but Q, it means quell. It, it stands for quell, and it's a German word meaning source. And the idea here is that um, what source did some of the gospel writers have for the things that they wrote? And if I remember correctly, Q is a reference to, I think it's uh, what Matthew and Luke have in common that is not written in Mark. There are certain things that is in Mark, Matthew, and Luke. There are certain things that Matthew and Luke both have, but that are not in Mark. I think that that's the one they refer to as Q. There's different letters for these different supposed sources. My thought is, is it doesn't actually matter. Um, I'm not, I don't, I mean, okay, I don't care, uh, in all honesty, if, if Mark, Matthew, Luke, or John used written sources that came under the leading of the Holy Spirit uh, you know, into their possession and, and as they wrote it down, I'm not worried about that. I'm not worried about if they heard it from Rufus or Alexander, or if they heard it from, got it from a written source, or if they got it from a whole variety of all these different methods, just so that it was preserved, that it was careful, that it was Holy Spirit led as they wrote. And I think we have good reason to think it was. Um, so I don't think it matters that much. And I don't know the answer to whether or not there is an actual cue. I think that's over my head for that one. 
Um, Insects are cool says I'm an atheist. Um, my main question about the reliability of the gospels is the ending of the gospels. The Greek documents have Mark ending at 16:8. plus the gospels don't agree with each other. Okay. So those are two very different kinds of questions. Um, um, so insects are cool. First thing. Thank you, man. I'm, I'm glad that you're like listening to what I have to share. I, I think there's a lot of atheists that would never get this far. And I'm stoked that you're with me and that you're considering these things. Um, so I actually deal with the ending of Mark in much more detail in the series I have called Evidence for the Bible. And I highly recommend that series to you. The ending of Mark, it's not a... Pr- it is a question for us. It's not a problem for us. Um, if you actually study the ending of Mark and we take the short ending, which is what I think is accurate, is the short ending of Mark, not the longer ending, then we see a couple things. First off, the longer ending is constructed from information from the other Gospels and the book of Acts in particular, meaning whoever added this content added it from these inspired sources, just trying to give you the rest of the story because Mark leaves you like a cliffhanger. Like it was there and then the, then the witnesses who were reading it or sharing it could say yes and it, and I saw him and I saw him too. You know, that kind of thing being written maybe earlier when those witnesses were still around to do it. Um, so yeah, I don't think the, the ending of Mark is, an, is a debate that even should affect you as an atheist at all. I think it's an interesting discussion for Christians to have. I don't think it has any impact on whether the Gospels are true or not. Um, in my opinion. So I do have videos on that in the Evidence for the Bible series. Your other thing about the Gospels not agreeing with each other is I would say I, I take a pretty strong stance in that they do agree with each other and I actually seek to resolve supposed contradictions. I don't think there are contradictions. I really don't. Now there's others who do think there's contradictions and they just think those contradictions are not a problem because it's speaking generally or because it's using accepted methods and biography of the day. That's like a, uh, Mike Lycona takes that view. Um, uh, but I would say that this is, this is again now, it's not, okay, so if, if your version of Christianity is, if I find one, you know, maybe maybe there's good reason to believe Jesus rose from the dead, good reason to believe he fulfilled prophecy, good reason to believe that, that, that all that stuff's true. But I don't think that the disciples, their names are not consistent, right? Is it, is it Matthew or, or is it Levi? Like, what was his real name? I, I'm going to reject Christianity. I would say that's not reasonable, right? Like, it would be more reasonable to say um, there would be simply a mistake, this, which I don't agree with. This is not my position, but there's a mistake there. But that doesn't affect the resurrection of Christ or the fulfilled prophecy or the inspiration of scripture. It just means God didn't care about some of those things. But that's not my position. And I will defend the inerrancy of scripture. That is that is the position I do take. Um, and so you can check out that same video series, Evidence for the Bible. I go, th- I have three whole videos on supposed contradictions where I try to reconcile them in reasonable ways. And, uh, and I encourage you to check that out, man. That video series is for you. Evidence for the Bible, the whole playlist. That's totally for you. Okay. One for all says from the live chat, um, said he can't, okay. This is a, a statement about him. Uh, he said he couldn't stay, but he's hoping you'd answer whether or not I believe Jesus was capable of sinning while on earth. Um, I feel like I should think about this question more before answering it. Uh, I'll say my tentative position, my starting position right now is physically he was capable. Um, character wise, he was not, he, he would simply never do such a thing as sin, but he had physically, he had the ability to like pick up a knife and stab somebody who didn't deserve it. He had that ability physically, but his character would never allow him to do those things yet. He was tempted. The scripture does say he was tempted, meaning that there was some, some 
you know, pressure on him to do something that was not right. He was tempted in all points as we are yet without sin. But I think it's, it's that, it's that, you know, the, the, the thing in you that gets you to say, no, I will not do that thing. That sort of character, um, Jesus had that perfectly. And so I, I, I tend to think that character wise, no, physically, yes, but he was specifically tempted. These are specific doctrines that I think I would hold to. Um, Ray Trujillo Robinson says, I know this may not have much to do with the topic, but it's bothering me. I watched a segment on humans receiving microchips in hand. What's your take on this? Well, I grew up, Ray, I grew up in that same environment where anything you took on the hand was automatically the mark of the beast. And slowly over time, I realized that that's not what the text of scripture says, right? Um, I don't assume that everything's the mark of the beast, and I don't think we should either. So what is the mark of the beast in Revelation? You not only have to take a mark, but specifically, you can't buy and you can't sell without it. And taking the mark and worshiping the image of the beast are connected. So if you're getting a mark on you to get access or a chip or to get access to a building, to be able to, you know, your wallet gets stolen and you're like, I want to use this for my payments now, that kind of thing. I don't think that's the mark of the beast unless it's connected to the actual worship of some sort of image of the beast, some sort of false thing. This is from a guy who's a futurist. I believe the things in Revelation are yet to come and they will actually happen. Um, so yeah, I, I think we often overreact to those things. I saw a movie in this about this in the seventies that was all about how the mark was a, a barcode that was on your forehead or your hand. Um, but we forget that it's about worshiping the beast. It's not just about buying and selling. It's about all of that. So something to think about. Yeah. Um, T. Karamali says Titus and First Timothy refer to pastoral requirements such as having one wife and having children. Do you have any views on this or plan to make a video? I don't have any plans currently to make a video on that. I would say that. Um, Titus doesn't require that a, um, and Timothy, it doesn't require that a pastor have children or an elder or bishop. It doesn't require they have children. Um, it's, it does say a husband of one wife, but yet Paul seems to have been single and he was a leader in the church. So, you know, I, I don't think that that's saying they have to be married, although there's a great benefit there. Um, I think what it's saying is that it can't be polygamy. I think that was the issue. My own opinion on that. Um, and with children, it's not just that they have to have children, but but the quality of their fatherhood matters, right? Depending on the age of their children. But but he's 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 ruling his own house well. You know, he's honoring God in the way he raises his family. I think that all the the, the statements about pastors, there's like one skill qualification. He has to be able to teach, and everything else is character. He has to be a godly man who's consistently godly in the home. In, in life, amongst non-believers, he's a consistent godly man. His skill at teaching cannot be the reason why we throw him into the pulpit. He's got to be a godly man. And I, I've, I've grown stronger and stronger on this over the years. I'd rather have a mediocre teacher as a pastor who's a godly man than have the most incredible teacher in the world who's um, uh, spiritually shallow or making all these compromises and who's not honoring Christ with his family. Um, uh, so question number nine, I'll take a few more here and then we'll call it a night. Um, I see I've got uh, a lot, uh, 20 something questions. I'm sorry, I won't be able to get to them all. Uh, how do I know if God's trying to communicate or talk to me? New Christian and very curious about this as I hear a lot of other Christians saying that God speaks to them. I'll say this, A.H., um, don't stress over it. If God wants to tell you something, I don't think you have to be like, is that the Lord? Is that the, I mean, God can speak to you as clearly as he wants to. In the meantime, 
Learn to live by biblical principles, not by um, guessing at what God might be telling you in the moment. Because it tends to create unstable Christians when we live. And then we, we all know somebody like that. They're always seeming to hear from God. I don't know if that's true or not, but I, but I, I know that that's not the model for Christians that I read about in the New Testament. So I think that it's much better for us to live by biblical principles, learn to discern the difference between evil and good, live, live by the, the call to seek first his kingdom and righteousness, and make our choices and decisions accordingly. Always be in prayer. Seek the Lord before you make those choices, um, but don't worry about it. God does want you to make actual decisions in life, um, and that's a good thing. Uh, Joe Delgado says, Mike, do you think there might be more scrolls in the Qumran Caves area? They actually recently found some, I heard, uh, not too long ago. So very possibly, maybe there are. Um, uh, Deshaun Jeffries says, uh, how do we defend statements made in scripture that happened in private or away from verification? Do we assume it was revealed orally or at a later time? Holy Spirit revelation? Um Okay, so like, let me give you an example that you might be thinking of, Deshaun, right? So um, Jesus is having a conversation with Pilate, and they kind of come aside, and Pilate and him are talking. Now, Pilate, surely he's not talking to a prisoner without his guard there, so there's going to be other people present. But none of the disciples were there. The women weren't there. How did they know about the conversation? How did they hear about the, con- the, the things that Jesus said and Pilate said? Um, well, we don't, we don't, I don't have an answer for you. Um, it, now, it could be that one of the guards had later, you know, come to faith and then they told people the conversation between Jesus and Pilate. It could be that it was just Pilate himself that told somebody later, yes, I took him aside and he said this. I mean, it may have been announced. We don't know the answers to those questions. Um, So yeah, I think it's smart to recognize that we have lots of verifications for the scripture, but not to think that we have to verify every single thing the scripture teaches. If you think you have to verify every single thing the scripture teaches, then you're never allowing it to take a place of authority in your life. Never. Because you're going to, you know, prove it, prove it, prove it. You're basically disbelieving everything all the time. Not that you're doing this to Sean, but that would be the attitude that we have when we have to verify every single detail. Instead, I just look at the wealth of information that keeps pointing to the truthfulness of the scripture. And I go, yep, that confirms, really, that confirms that this is God's inspired text and I trust it. Renatus in Christo says, um, how much biblical knowledge do I need to get, to get to start teaching people via YouTube and other social media platforms? Every time I think I know enough, something tells me I need to wait a little longer. I don't know, man. Um, whatever you teach, don't, don't think like you're going to learn enough and then you can just teach Christianity and touch every topic and address every issue. Instead, take one issue at a time, learn it well, learn it thoughtfully, learn that passage, learn this scripture, and then you can teach it carefully, um, but but I would say isolate issues and deal with them one at a time. Scriptures deal with them section by section, thought by thought. Um, but don't think you're gonna, you know, get uh, you know that much that much understanding that you could just stand up. I tell you everything. I, I can't. There's things I can't answer. Um, okay, I'm gonna go to uh, Jeffrey Stein's question. He says Bart Ehrman said if we harmonize the Gospels, we can do it, but we are writing our own gospel. What are Mike's thoughts on that? I think it's complete garbage. I agree with you, Jeffrey Stein. He says you can't harmonize the Gospels. I literally have a video with that quote from him and me explaining why it doesn't work. So that video is called like, um, Why You Don't Let Bart Ehrman Interpret the Bible for You. (laughs) That's a nice title for a video. Um, So I, I recommend checking that out. I give specific examples of what's wrong with Bart Ehrman's idea that harmonizing is bad. It just doesn't work in reality. It's just a way of ignoring the text in reality. Um... Okay, I'm gonna 
I'm trying to get more because I just feel bad not answering your guys' questions. Uh, Paul says, uh, Paul Ewert says, First um, Corinthians seven fourteen. Does an unbelieving spouse get to go to heaven if the other spouse is a believer? Oh, this is a really interesting passage. So, let's look at it. First Corinthians seven fourteen. It says, speaking when there's a, a wife who's a believer and she's honoring the Lord in her life. It says, for the unbelieving husband he's not a believer, is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean, but now they are holy. This idea of sanctified, here's here's a great example of a principle I have when I do my Bible studies, is don't read theological definitions of words into dictionary usages of words, right? The word sanctified doesn't mean the process by which the Holy Spirit makes us more like Christ after we have come to faith. That's not what the word sanctified means. That's the doctrine of sanctification. The word sanctified, it just means that she's having a positive cleansing effect upon him and it's happening to the children too. The wife, if she's following Christ, she's having a preserving effect on her husband. She's helping him, right? And the marriage stays together and things like this. And it helps the children too. But if they break up and say the, the children go to be with the um, the unbelieving spouse, what are they going to raise them as? They're not going to church. They're not hearing the gospel. They're not hearing the truth of Christ. So this is not going to help them. This is going to make them unclean in that. It's, it's a picture word, unclean here. Um, so I don't think it at all is talking about salvation. I think it's talking about the dictionary use of the word sanctify, not the theological use of the term. And that hopefully will help you out. Um, oftentimes, uh, we can understand things better when we just realize that one principle. Um, okay, a couple more, a couple more, I promise. A couple more and we're done. Um, okay, question from uh, Arlen Aspinall. How do we know what Jesus said when he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane if he was alone? He would have, uh, would he have came to the, to the boys and told them, I've struggled with this. Um, it says specifically that he went about a stone's throw away and that he was crying out in agony while he was praying. So I think he went far enough away to be considered alone, but where they were still able to hear him. That would be my, my theory on that. Um, another possibility is the Holy Spirit just gave them the things that Jesus said. I mean, that could be the case, but the gospels aren't written like that's the case. Like, like, like every, every random thing is just the Holy Spirit led. Um, it, Cause they seem to be going from eyewitness sources here. That, that seems to be the case to me. Now, maybe there's more data we should have there, but I think as you read the passage carefully, you'll see he was alone. It doesn't mean he was so far isolated from people that they didn't know what he was doing, but rather they were able to, um, to actually hear him, uh, still. Um, all right. Mariano Rogers says, Mike, thank you for devoting your time to your online audience. Your teaching is much needed and beneficial to all of us, regardless of our denoms, <laughs> denoms, like denominations. I almost said demons. I was like, regardless of your demons, but you were denoms. I was switching the words there. Um, you're very welcome, Mariano. And you guys, if I can mention this, um, I'm currently trying to go full-time with this online ministry and I've, I've never asked for money or anything like that in the past, but the truth is my church can't keep me on staff, um, for, for very much longer this year, I will not have a job. <laughs> and so I'm looking rather than applying for a job at some other fellowship, and then it taking me away from the online ministry because I'm going to have a full-time thing at another church. Like I'd, I'd rather continue this impactful ministry. And so for that, I'm, I put a donate button on my website and I'm actually receiving donations so that it will help support me so I can just keep doing this on a weekly basis and keep having the impact that it's having. I got a message today from a guy who says he was a, uh, he was a militant atheist 
and that this ministry was instrumental in bringing him to Christ. Um, so I want to keep that up. You know, I want to keep doing this ministry. And for that, I will, I've got to uh, still make a living. And so I've regretfully put a donate button up. I kind of hate even talking about that stuff, but I did. So if you want to give, then please uh, consider doing so. All right. Um, from uh, Scott uh, Hykilla, he says, how do you use the book in question to answer a question about the same book? Ah, I have a whole video on that. It's actually called like, here's me using the Bible to prove the Bible. <laughs> and so, um, of course you can, but let me put it to you this way, Scott. It's like, I assume that you're not a Christian or not. You don't believe the Bible. Um, do you use the Bible to prove the Bible wrong? Like, do you say, ah, oh, the Quirinius, the governor Quirinius. It's like, Luke's wrong about that. I think he's historically wrong. So you use the Bible to prove the Bible wrong. Well, in the same sense, I'm going to use the Bible when proving the Bible right. It's like the way I use a hundred dollar bill to prove a hundred dollar bill is real. I run through these authenticity checks, but you got to use the bill. So I do this with the scriptures. I look at prophecy. I look at internal consistency. I look at extra biblical historical verifications. I look at all these sorts of things and I say, this is the word of God. Um, so yeah, you have to use the Bible to prove the Bible. You just don't do it in a circular fashion. Um, okay. All right. Last question from Pine Creek. From Pine Creek Doug, Doug the Atheist. And he says, uh, you've made many videos on Jesus being found in the Old Testament. Wouldn't it be more likely that the authors of the Gospels use the Old Testament to create narratives that may not have happened? Is that, is that what you think, Doug? I smirk because me and Doug have a history. I know Doug. Um, Doug doesn't ask these questions to find out what I have to say. He asks them to get you to doubt Christianity. So what's wrong with its is it more likely questions? Because isn't it more likely is a way of ignoring evidence, ignoring thoughtful arguments, and just going, eh, don't you just feel like it'd be more likely if, and that's not really a good way to, to approach these issues. Um, I mean, I think if you want to ask what's more likely, it's more likely that, that Jesus is the Messiah. Um, but basically, Doug, you're, at this point, what you're doing is you've realized how intricate the connections are between Jesus and the Old Testament. And so it's hard to say that this is an accident. So you're seeing a deliberate a deliberate thing going on here when when Jesus is is the the lamb of God and Passover lamb and Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 and you're seeing Jesus there's a real and deliberate intentful connection off some author meant to say that Jesus is the intricate fulfillment of all these details of the Old Testament and in that we agree but you assume that author wasn't God. You assume it was fabricated by the New Testament writers. And I don't assume that. I think that that's a false assumption. And one of the ways that I can show that it's false is by saying that some of the same ways that Jesus really did fit the description of the Old Testament are things that are that are uh, verified by extra biblical sources. Jesus really was an apocalyptic prophet according to extra biblical sources. According to the consensus of historians, he really did die on the cross under Pontius Pilate. It really is claimed that he rose on the third day on the feast of first fruits and the waving of the sheaf of first fruits. Um, it, it really is th that that Jesus did die a death that looks like Isaiah fifty three. It really is that he did it in connection to these Passover and unleavened bread festivals of Israel. It really is that the, the, the rising of the early church happened at the time of Pentecost. Like these things really happened. Like these are just historical facts. So what I'm saying is the writers didn't make them up because they're historical facts. But if you'll back up a minute, you'll remember that you too recognized there's a legitimate connection between the old and new testaments in the person of Jesus and foreshadowing and fulfillment. 
You just assumed that it was made up, but we have extra biblical evidence that it wasn't made up. So I think that's a good reason for you to become a Christian, my friend, and I sure hope you do. Um, so you guys, thank you so much for being with me today. It's been fantastic. Uh, a bit of a longer stream and, um, next week we'll be back. Um, I I've got some things coming up. I'm actually gonna be taking like almost two weeks off because I'm at camp with our students for high school ministry and junior high, um, at winter camp. And then after that, me and my wife are going on a little vacation and, um, recharge our batteries. So, um, but I will be here next Tuesday. You will see me then. And until then, Lord bless you and keep you make his face to shine upon you. And if you're a skeptic, um, let your skepticism drive you to research and get the evidence and then give your heart to Christ. <laughs>